We're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6, if you want to open your Bibles there. 1 Samuel chapter 6, and as you're making your way there by introduction, tell you a brief story, an experience I had this week. Um, we are, uh, we're working on the main campus over on Santiago, and uh, we're doing some construction over there, as uh, Mike announced. And um, so this week, I was picking up some lumber at Home Depot. We'd started a project, and we are kind of under the, the gun there, timing-wise, had to get it done. So I was at Home Depot first thing in the morning, picked up the, the, the lumber, and I'm, I'm there in the parking lot, and I'm loading it into my truck. Parking lot's empty. Nobody's in the parking lot here. It's really early in. And so I'm loading lumber into my truck, totally not paying attention. I got the cab door open. I've got, you know, my wallet, my phone, and my keys are just sort of laying over here, uh, you know, and I'm over here working. Well, I didn't notice, but all of a sudden there is this, I mean, full-blown meth head works his way up to me. This guy is sketch with a capital S, man. And before I know, I mean, I look up, he's on top of me. He's like right there. And so I'm standing there, and I, and I notice out of the corner of my eye that there's some movement coming up on the corner of my eye, and I'm like, oh, great, here we go, I'm by myself, you know. So, so I, you know, I, I, I sort of, you know, I position myself sort of sideways, you know, fighting stance, right? You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen here, just sort of defending myself. And, uh, and I, I'm just, you know, hey, you know, what's going on? Well, what the guy didn't see was that with my right hand, I, I grabbed my knife, you know, out of my back pocket, and I, I don't know if he brought a gun to the knife fight and then I'm out of luck, but I'm going down without, you know, I'm not going down without a fight. So, uh, so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't pull it out on him, you know, and I'm going to, but I, but I got it in my hand in case I need it, you know, you never know. So I'm, I'm talking to the guy. It turns out the movement I saw on my left was, was his girlfriend and they together, I mean, let me just say meth had not been good to them, all right? They hadn't slept in like a week, it looked like, and they're trying to sell me something, and I guarantee you, they're trying to sell me something that the guy ripped off, you know? And he's, and he's there, and he's, he's saying, now, okay, I know I'm stereotyping, but, you know, it, it just, some things just are, you know, that's what it was, all right? And so I'm there, and I'm talking to the guy, and, and uh, my heart's just going, because I'm thinking, you know, it's going down right here, right now, you know, kind of thing. Well, um, I don't know, maybe the guy saw me with, you know, kind of slyly put my knife in my hand or I don't know what, but, but he backed off, he took off, I hurriedly finished loading the lumber and I went on my way. In fact, I, I loaded it up so quickly I didn't really tie it down that well and I had to a couple of blocks down the road pull over and actually tie the, to, you know, really secure the stuff because it was sort of flopping in the back of the truck. But I'm thinking, oh great, you know, uh, robbery averted kind of deal get back to work and, you know, doing everything we're doing. Well, later on that day, I'm, I'm talking to Brenda, and I tell her the story. And, uh, and so she says to me, she says, well, did you, did you talk to him about Jesus? Did you, did, you, did you talk to him about his salvation? I'm like, I suck. I'm horrible, you know? I said, and, I, and here's what I said. I, almost, I, I said, babe, I was too busy thinking about how I was going to kill him. <laughs> and it's so tragic, and I tell you that story by way of introduction because, man, aren't you glad that, it, that, that God doesn't treat us that way? That he doesn't spend his time thinking about how he's going to kill us, but what consumes his heart is his love for us. God loves you. He loves you so much, the Bible says, his thoughts towards you are more than the sand and all the seashore. 
That, that, that he thinks about us constantly. The Bible tells us that his thoughts towards us are for good and not for evil. Thoughts to give us a future and a hope. Paul told Timothy that God desires that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, he said, God who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. The, the Bible tells us that God is the author and finisher of our faith. And that it's, it's for the joy that, that, that was set before him, the joy of saving me, the joy of saving you, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the book of Romans tells us that there at the right hand of the throne of God, that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. What that means is that right now, it means this very moment that our Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God and he's praying for you by name. He's praying for me by name. The Bible says the hair on our head is numbered. God knows us intimately. He loves us desperately. And, 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 and today, as we continue here in 1 Samuel chapter 6, what we're going to find is that the Philistines and the Israelites, they're both facing the consequences of their sin. And, and there's huge lessons with massive implications for us today that we need to pay attention to, that these, these lessons as it pertains to salvation, vital lessons as uh, talking about, you know, confession and repentance and, and the cost of, of, of facing God apart from Jesus Christ. These are all lessons that we take here from 1 Samuel chapter 6, and they're lessons that the Lord wants, wants to teach us. And so we pick up where we left off, 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It tells us, now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Now, the, the ark of the covenant, this was a box that, that God had instructed uh, Moses and the Israelites to build. In uh, Exodus uh, 25, he said to Moses, have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and, and 27 inches tall, 27 inches high. This is, he wasn't given inches, he was given a different unit of measurement, but this is the approximation of, of what it was. And God then went on to instruct Moses about this, and he said, now what I want you to do is I want you to overlay it with pure gold, and I want you to build it with four gold rings, two on either side. I want you to, to, to construct poles, that I want those poles also to be covered with gold, and those poles will fit through those rings on either side, and that's for carrying of the Ark of the Covenant, and gave very, instruct, very specific instructions on all of that. And, and, uh, and then he got into specific instructions about the top, of the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, I want you to make the top of the Ark of the Covenant out of pure gold. And this, this, this top that he talked to him about constructing, this is known as the mercy seat. This is the place where the high priest would sprinkle the blood from the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He, seven times he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat. And this mercy seat is a picture of Jesus Christ. This is super important to the end of our message today. And so uh, there, uh, what God said to Moses in regards to the Ark of the Covenant in general and in regards to the mercy seat in particular, he said, and there at the mercy seat, he said, there I will meet you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. 
And so the, the Ark of the Covenant, this was the centerpiece of Israel's worship. And we read here that it was in the Philistine country for seven months. What had taken place is that the, because the Ark of the Covenant is the, the picture of the presence of God, because it is the, the, really the embodiment of, of the God of the Israelites, uh, when the Philistines conquered the Israelites because they were in sin and rebellion to God and he allowed them to be conquered, well, then he allowed also the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines. And so when they captured this Ark, this symbol of their God, they took this thing and they took it to the city of Ashdod where the temple of Dagon was. Dagon was the God that they worshipped. And this was symbolic. It was a symbol of saying, our God is better than your God. We beat you, we took your God captive, and and so our God is greater. But it didn't work out that way for them. If you've been here going through the the, the series, you know that basically what happened was when they took the Ark of the Covenant and they stuck it in the Temple of Dagon, that Dagon actually fell down and they had to run back in and prop Dagon up. And then he fell down again and was actually broken uh, before uh, the Ark uh, of the Covenant, before the presence of God, which is what the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes. And in the presence of God, the Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what happened was they thought their God was greater and they found out their God wasn't. And what happened is they kept this ark then in their presence. The hand of the Lord was very heavy upon them. And, and so God struck them with tumors. And it's a very interesting word in the Hebrew, that word tumor. Nobody really knows quite what that is. Uh, many speculate that it's, it's hemorrhoids, that, that God struck them with hemorrhoids. Whatever it was, it was very unpleasant. They didn't, they, 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 the, the hand of the Lord very heavy upon them. And, and so, you know, here they, they went into this thing thinking, oh, we've defeated God and we got you. And God's turning the tables and saying, no, I got you, right? And, uh, and so now they're hot potatoing it with this Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they, they're not ready to fully give it back yet. And that'll factor in pretty well here in just a minute as to why and what's going on with them. But they're not ready to give this thing back, but they don't want to keep it either because it's making them miserable, and so what they're doing is they're you know, doing the hot potato from city to city of the different Philistine cities. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant from Ashdod and they, they move it over to Gath and then they move it over to Ekron and so on. And everywhere they take it, the same thing happens. God's, heavy is, is he, God's hand is heavy upon them and, and uh, there's you know, just this, this breaking out of tumors and all that they have to, to suffer through. And so this is going on for seven months. Why? I mean, why on earth? I mean, you know, that, that you would think that you would, you, you, you get this thing and you would realize, well, the, let's get that thing out of here now, you know, but no, they, they endure this thing for seven months. What on earth is going on? Well, this is our first point. If you take a note, you might want to write it down. The Philistines chose to cling to the lie rather than confess the truth. They chose to cling to the lie rather than confess the truth. You know, it's interesting, in John's gospel, a guy named Nicodemus came to see Jesus. And uh, he came to him at night so, you know, nobody would find out. And he's basically wanting to find out the truth of, you know, what is going on. And he's a member of the Sanhedrin, and, and so they hated Jesus. But he's, he's recognizing, man, something's going on there. So, so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus is in the process of talking to Nicodemus. He's like, you're, you know, here you are, and, and you're one of the religious leaders in Israel. You don't know what's up? You don't know what's going on? 
So he begins to talk to him, and basically Jesus tells him, look, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he says, you know, Nicodemus, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he, he sent his son into the world that through him the world might find, find him, find eternal life. And so in the course of saying this, Jesus moved on and he said this to Nicodemus. He says, and this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And that's the bullseye of what's going on here. Men love the darkness rather than the light because their, their deeds are evil. And you know, it can take a long time before we're miserable enough to let go of our idols. Get it? We have this tendency, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many times do we get caught up in something, and we know we shouldn't get caught up in this thing, we realize that this is a sinful thing, this is not a pleasing thing to God, and we realize that it's causing me to have consequences, but I'm just not done with it yet, I'm not ready to let go of it yet. Like, how stupid is that? And yet we do it all the time, don't we? I mean, maybe even right now, as I'm saying that, you have this thing in your mind, the Holy Spirit, you know, just knocking on your heart, saying, I've been, haven't I been telling you about this thing? Haven't we been talking about this thing? Are you, are you miserable enough yet? Turn to Luke chapter 15. One of the things Jesus did when he was here in the flesh was um, he told a lot of stories. Uh, stories are good because, um, you know, you take an earthly story and it's, it has a heavenly meaning. And, you know, picture says a thousand words, so you get a story and you can, you can learn things. You have you, things that maybe are complex to understand if you tell them in the context of a story. You, know, you get it. So Jesus did this a lot. And uh, one of the stories that he told here in Luke's gospel was a story about a lost son, a prodigal son, one of, the, one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. Listen to it. He says, verse 11, and then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. See, what would happen in this day and age was that you could get your inheritance one of two ways. You can either wait, you know, for, you know, your father or mother die, whatever, and then get your inheritance that way, or you could ask them ahead of time, hey, can you divide out what you're going to give me and can I have it now? And so this is what this, this kid does. He's like, hey, how about right now you, you divide out what, what's coming to me? So he divided to them his livelihood, verse 13, and not many days after, The younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. I don't know if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, but I have that, that, just those two words, in want, underlined in my Bible. Nearby, I have this written, that idols will always leave you in want. They'll always leave you in want. They promise so much, but they always leave you in want. And so there he was, and he began to be in want. And then verse 15, he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. Again, another section of my Bible that I have underlined. He joined himself to a citizen of that, of that country. 
you, if you are a child of God, you are not a citizen of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. And the Bible says we eagerly await a savior from there. And, and yet what happens is instead of, because what should have happened here was that this should have been the wake up point for this kid. And rather than joining himself to a citizen of the country, what he should have done was recognized that his problem was is that he had disconnected himself from the Father. And that he needed to be reconnected with the Father and he needed to join himself to the Father. But rather joining himself to the Father, he joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields, the citizen of the country did, to feed swine, to feed pigs. Now, you know, again, this is Jesus telling a story to a Jewish culture, and this is a Jewish boy in the story, and feeding the pigs, man, that is about as low as you're going to get. You know, we're, 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 getting, we're getting to a picture here, you know, you, if you've ever seen, you know, Christmas Vacation, the movie, and Kate Winslet sticks her head in the oven, you know, and she pulls her head out, she says, low point, Low point, this is the low point in this guy's life. I mean, he is there with the pigs. Verse 16, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Again, the world has nothing to satisfy us. The world has nothing to give us. And this is what's going on. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. That beautiful thing. I'll rise and go to my father. He didn't say, I'm going to arise and I'm going to go to help a self-help group. He didn't say, I'm going to arise and I'm going to go, you know, seek to repair my inner child and figure out what's going on there, you know. It wasn't any of that stuff. He says, I'm going to arise and I'm going to go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose, verse 20, and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and he had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And it's such a a beautiful picture there. What happens here? Because you've got this guy who's basically bailed on his dad, took everything his dad had to give him and said, I'm done with you. And he went and made a train wreck out of his life. And you would imagine that now he's coming back and his expectation is, look, at least can I be like one of your servants? Can I work for you? He's kind of thinking, you know, maybe, you know, if he's really super good, maybe he'll hire me. And you read this verse and what you realize is that this dad, he saw him coming from afar off, which tells us a lot of things. One of the things it tells us, this dad was watching for his son's return. And, and, and it saw him coming from afar off. I put my, myself in this father's shoes. What I see is that this, this father, I mean, he maybe ordered his day around how he would watch down the road. I mean, he saw him coming from afar off. Tells me, you know, he was looking down there a lot. Maybe he'd even found, picked out that spot on that road was the farthest place that I can see down the road. Where on my property can I see the farthest down on the road? I'm going to position myself there and I'm going to watch for my son's return. Do you see the heart of the father here? 
looking for this kid to come back, just watching intently. Where is he? And when he comes, his father doesn't say, you know what? I'm going to let him take that walk of shame. I'm just going to sit here. I'll just wait till he gets to me. Oh, his dad runs to him. Runs to him, can't even wait for him. He's, he's running to him, greets him, falls on his neck, hugs, kisses every parent in here. Many parents, if you, you know, you parents, you have prodigals right now, you know. The love of a father, man. And so this is the picture here and this beautiful picture that Jesus is telling and, and, and what he's trying to tell us is, listen, your heavenly father loves you. You are so precious to him. And the enemy, man, he works on you and he gets you to sin. And then the minute you sin, he jumps the fence and he tells you you, that you stink. And you can't go to the Father because look at everything that you did. And you're horrible. And he wants to get you to believe that about God. And what Jesus is saying is you don't believe that about God because God loves you. He wants you as his child. He's just looking for you to return. Well, now hold that thought. Go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. And what we see here is that the ark there is with them seven months, verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priests and and the the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Like the prodigal son, what has happened in these guys' lives, these Philistines now who are suffering through so much consequence of choosing the wrong God, they are in a position where they are now desperate for change. They're desperate for some relief. Some, man, we, we, need, we, need to get, we need to get delivered from this thing right now. There was an old southern comedian and he, he tells a story about going, going coon hunting with his, with his cousin. And, and so they, they go out there, they go coon hunting, and the, it, it, the guy's name is Jerry Clower. If, you, if, you, if you're old enough, you'll remember the guy, and I won't do it justice. But basically, his cousin climbs this tree to go after this coon that they've got treed, and the, and the raccoon rips him up. He says, oh, we're all standing down there and all we hear is the raccoon screaming and my cousin screaming and pretty soon my cousin's screaming, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And he says, I can't, if I can't shoot up there because I might hit you. He says, well, just shoot up here amongst us because one of us has got to get some relief. <laughs> Either this coon or me and I, at this point, I really don't care. And this is what's going on here is that these Philistines are just like, man, we are, we're desperate for change. And it's been said that people either change by inspiration or they change by desperation. I don't know, maybe you're desperate here today. Maybe you're in a place where you recognize this and you know, you know all about what it is to have the consequence. Just like this, this prodigal son, he knew consequence. I'm sitting here in the mud with the pigs and, I, and, it, and I'm starving to death. And I I got myself here. And so so they're desperate and and they ask two questions. And this is important. They ask two questions. They ask a primary question and then they ask a secondary follow-up thing to that. Here's the primary question. They say, what shall we do with the ark? Now remember, the ark, what does it represent? It represents the presence of God. So here's what their question really is. 
what do I do with the presence of God? Now, here's what happens for us. When, when you're living a life apart from God, when you're living a, a life that has completely just, just renounced God and you've got, gone off on your own direction, what happens is you are going to face consequences to that lifestyle. And some of us know that all too well. That, that, that couple that I faced in, the, in the, uh, the Home Depot parking lot, they were facing the consequences of a life lived in opposition to God, in rebellion against God. And when we live in that way, when we live apart from God, we're going to face consequences. And what happens inevitably is those consequences are going to work on you and get you to the place to where you, sooner or later you're going to come face to face with God. This was what Paul was talking about to the Corinthians when he basically, he's writing them the letter. He says, look, I, I, I heard that, that one of your members is like, you, you guys are all caught up in sexual sin. And one of, you, one of your guys is actually, you know, sleeping with his mom. He's like, that's nasty. And the world looks on in the church. You know it's bad when the world looks at the church and says, ew, what you're doing is ugly. It's nasty. And Paul's saying, you guys ought to be weeping and mourning about what you're up to and what you're all into. And because you think, you know, you're celebrating, oh, we're diverse and we're accepting and we're loving. And he's like, you ought to just, you should rather be weeping and mourning. And what he, what he basically told him is, he goes, look, well, here's what you need to do with that guy. You need to kick him out. And the reason you need to kick him out, not is, oh, we don't love you and we want you to go to hell. No, you kick him out because you say, look, we do love you. And the best thing that we can do for you since you're bound and determined to go in this direction and thumb your nose at God is not allow you to remain in the fellowship where you have this semblance of, oh, I've, I've got a right relationship with God, when you really don't. No, the best, most loving thing we can do is say, look, you want to run with Satan? Go run with Satan. And let him work you over. And then eventually, God willing, you will come to the end of yourself and you will recognize, like this kid sitting in the pig's pen, that, that what have I done? And Satan will have his way with you. He will, he will work on you. And, and, and so if we deliver you to him, then maybe that will bring you to the place of repentance, of true repentance. We see this over and over. There's so many examples of this. I mean, after 9-11, the, the, the churches were exploding. The week after 9-11, you know, we had 1,185 you know, seat sanctuary. We had to add another service that so many people came. Because what happens is you go through life, you face consequence, and all of a sudden when you face consequence, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember. There's a God, and I, I'm not near him. We, we had a gal, a member of our church, and, and, and her testimony basically was that, that she was living a life apart from God. She was just... just train wreck life and she basically got to the end of 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 herself and in and in this place of consequence in her life contemplating suicide as she's driving down the road actually not should i or shouldn't i but how am i going to do it kind of contemplating suicide she the radio is on and she she turns the dial and all of a sudden she meets god it's funny how god shows up when we're on our way to sin isn't it? You ever had that happen to you? You're on your way to something, you're bound and determined, I'm going to go in this direction, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's, God, it's kind of inconvenient that you're here right now, God. 
And that's what happens. And God shows up in this gal's life, and now she's hearing him on the radio. Now she looks over, and there's our church. She's passing right by our church as God is just, you know, me. She's not a member of our church at this point. And she says in her testimony, look, I had one of two choices. At that point, I could either ignore God. I could either just completely reject the fact that me, in the depravity of my sin, that God had brought me to an intersection where I had to encounter him, and I could either just just ignore that, reject that, and go do what I was going to do, or I could repent. See, sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with God. And for some of you, maybe that's, that's here today. Maybe that's right now. Maybe you have been like these Philistines. You've been in this place where, man, you've been in the mud, and now it's just all about, look, these, these, these tumors and, and all, and I just can't handle this. And, and so, you know, good gravy, what am I going to do with the presence of God that, I, that I'm dealing with right now? And, and, and here you are. The Apostle Paul went through that. Acts chapter 9. This is when he was still going by Saul. It's when he was killing Christians, when he, when he hated Jesus and all the things that had to do with the Christ. He thought it was heretical, and, he, and there he is. He's, he's, he's a guy killing Christians. He's on the road to Damascus to kill more Christians, and God shows up in his life. Here he's on his way to sin, comes to an intersection where he has to encounter the true and living God. And God knocks him off his horse. Acts 9, verses 4 and 5 says, Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And this is what happens in our lives, is that we get to that place, just like the Philistines. It's like, what are we going to do with the presence of God? And they're kicking against the goads. God's hand's heavy upon them. Well, here's what happened in Paul's life in that encounter on the Damascus Road. The verse goes on to say, So he, trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, I want you to see in Saul's life, that's the second question. The first question is, wait a minute, who are you, God? And he's, yep, it's me. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. That was his first question. Oh my gosh, what do I do with, who's, is this the presence of God? What do I do with the presence of God? Second question is, what do you want me to do? See, for the Philistines, that wasn't their second question. Their second question was, first question, what do I do with the presence of God? Second question was, how do I get out of the presence of God? How do we get, how do we get rid of this thing? How, how, how am I, I going to, you know, just... Send this thing away to its place. Wrong, wrong, wrong question. Second point of notes in in our text here, if you're taking them, it's a call to confession. It's a call to confession. Verse 3. So they've called the priests together. Hey, what the heck are we going to do with the ark of God and how, how are we going to send it away? This is what they're asking the priests and all. And, and so they, these priests of the Philistines, they say, well, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering and then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And then they said, what is the trespass offering that we should return it to him? 
And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague that was on all of you and on all your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? There's a call to confession here. See, the Philistine priests, they knew enough to know that they had offended God. Okay? And, and they knew that they should do something to express their sorrow and to admit their guilt. And so what they advised the people to do in verse 3, they say, hey, listen, by all means, return it with a trespass offering. Now, a trespass is when you've crossed a line that you shouldn't have crossed. Okay, that's a trespass. When I was a kid, I used to collect insulators. They're, these are the glass things that are on top of telephone poles. And, and you know, sometimes they, you know, they, they have very rare ones that can be valuable and all. I read about them in an off-roading magazine. My dad was in the off-road industry, and I was, like, fascinated. I was hooked. And so I got my dad to take me out insulator hunting. And I had this little collection and all, and my dad puts me in the Jeep, and we go out, you know, into the middle of nowhere, and we're, like, going down the railroad tracks, you know, where the, the telephone poles are and the insulators are on them. And what we, what we came to realize is, like, there's dozens of insulators up there on the, on the pegs, and they're, and they're empty. they got no wire attached to them. There's, like, one or two wires on, the, on these old telegraph lines. And, and they're short. And I'm thinking, well, I can get it. So I, I, I climb up these lines to take these insulators off. And I think it's a great idea until the cops show up and they arrested my dad for trespassing. It's actually a felony, tampering with, with telegraph lines, you know. And, and so it, you know, they, we thought it was a good idea at first until the cops showed up. That's usually how it goes. It's a great idea. And, you know, all, it's all fun and games until the cops show up, you know. And uh, they ended up dropping the charge on my dad, so, you know, he doesn't have anything on his record. You know, he's filling out an employment, you know, form, you know, any felonies. Well, no, no, not to the best of your knowledge kind of deal, because no charges were ever filed against him. But that's a trespass. Hey, you trespassed. You went, you crossed a line that you shouldn't have crossed. You went somewhere where you shouldn't have gone. And so, so what happens to these these. Philistines is they've trespassed, and this is what they're doing. They're like, hey, look, you have trespassed. You've got to acknowledge that. You crossed a line you shouldn't have crossed. You took the Ark of the Covenant of God. You decided you were going to worship an idol, a false god, and, and you were going to try and make this, this false, or this true and living god bow down to a false god, and, and so I mean, you crossed the line you should not have crossed. Now, Whenever we trespass, there's a consequence for that, right? There's a consequence. And, and so the Philistines, they, they trespass by mocking God, by worshiping an idol. And the, the, the consequence for them was that they were ravaged by disease. And so what the Philistine priests recommend is this trespass offering. And it's this wacky offering. It's like, hey, what we want you to do is make golden images of your tumors and make golden images of the rats that you have and make those your trespass offering. You're like... In the Old Testament, it's just weird. Man, this is one of those examples where you're like, that's just weird. What's up with that? 
Here's what's up with that. It's a testimony, right? It's a testimony of their humiliation, and it's a testimony of confession on their part. What we did was wrong, right? And, and what it is, it's a, it's a monument of their shame, and it's a monument of their misery. And, and, and so the idea here is that, look, we, this, what we did was wrong. Now you're like, well, gosh, why rats? I mean, I get they, you know, they had tumors. Why rats? Well, there's, they, there's many that study this section and they hypothesize that what was actually going, do, going down here to the Philistines is that God allowed these rats that were infected with bubonic plague to infiltrate, and that's what, what, what happened here. And it kind of seems to fit because the symptoms that they have are consistent with the bubonic plague. And, and so God says, look, you know, the, 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 or these priests say, hey, what the offering is, is these, these stinking rats came in, we got sick, we got all these things, and what we're doing is we're, we're acknowledging by making this trespass offering, well, we're confessing our guilt. And, and by confessing our guilt and by making these golden images, what we're saying is, look, we know these plagues were not accidents. We, we know that the God of Israel caused them. We're apologizing to the Lord God, and we're asking him to turn away his anger. And, and we can relate with that in the sense that there are times when you have done something, when I have done something, and, and it's contrary to the will of God, and, and I, I get to the place where I, now I'm suffering through the consequences, right? I'm reaping what I sowed, and I, I get to the end of my story where I acknowledge, this is, I brought this on myself. I, it, this, is, this is all on me. And, and so what happens here, though, and we got to take note of this for these Philistines, it's a confession of their guilt, certainly, but it is far from a confession of faith and repentance. It's far from a confession of faith and repentance. It's an important thing to hear in um, 1 John 1.9. Here's what the Apostle, Paul said, or Apostle John says. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the key there, that word confess, it means literally to agree with God. And, so, and that, that has a multifaceted implication. All right. So when I confess that I've sinned against God in accordance, in accordance with what this verse is telling me, then what I'm doing is I'm calling sin what God calls sin. A lot of times what we'll do is I'm suffering the consequences of, you know, let's say I'm, I'm so, I, I drink too much and I can't control my drinking. And there's all these consequences in my life. And what happens is, if I confess, I get to the place where I go, oh, this drink is causing me all kinds of problems. That's a confession Right, but but if I just if I then go well, you know, gosh, I wish I could stop drinking, but you know, my problem is I, I've just I'm genetically predisposed to struggle with alcohol, and I, I really never stood a chance because my dad was a drinker, and you know, my mom was a drinker, and and so you know, and now I start making excuses for it. I, I I'm, I'm sick. I just have an illness. No, what you have is sin. Okay, and now you might be sitting here, and you go, hey, wait, Pastor Chad, I struggle with that. Listen. I struggle with that. My testimony is that, that I am genetically predisposed to struggle with alcohol. I mean, my grandfather, the Salvation Army, pulled him out of the gutter. He was a drunk, literally, in the gutter. And my grandfather on the other side, World War II fighter pilot, he was a binge drinker, an alcoholic. 
So, so you know, the, the, the cards are stacked against me. I struggle with alcohol. I'm just all the time. You know, it's like, wow, this is, this is an issue of big-time trouble. Now, I don't struggle with it anymore. Why? Because I repented of my sin, and I, and I don't drink. God set me free from that. And so the issue is, in confession, you have to get to the place where you say, look, I, you know, I struggle with drugs, or I struggle with alcohol, or I have, you know, this situation, or I have that situation. I'm not going to excuse it. I'm going to own it, and I'm going to say, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior to set me free. It's my faith in Jesus Christ, God coming into my life, that has set me free. You're a new creature in Christ, the Bible says. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so if you're here today and you say, look, I struggle with alcohol or I struggle with drugs or I struggle with pornography or I struggle with whatever it is, I would say to you, come to Jesus Christ and let him set you free from that sin because he will. But you have to confess that what you have is sin and that you need a savior. And so so this is the thing here is that if we confess our sins, call sin what God calls sin. And, and we confess that, 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 hey, Lord, this is not acceptable in your sight. That's an aspect of it. But another aspect of confession is confessing the, the remedy for your sin. That Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sin and that in Christ you're a new creation. And so the confession isn't just, hey, this is what I've done wrong, but the confession is this is what God has done to make that sin right and this is where my hope is. This is where my hope lies. And some of you today, you're caught up in a lifestyle of sin. You're caught up in, a, in just a complete merry-go-round of cause and effect. And I would suggest that you haven't come to the place where you've surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, and that's not to make light of the struggles of trying. Addiction is real. I know it. I get it. It's ironic. All my struggles with alcohol were before I turned 21, the legal age of drinking. I drank like a fish up until I turned 21. When I, when I was 23, God had set me free from it because I gave my life to Christ, because I surrendered my life to Christ, and, and, and he took it all away. My desire to drink is gone. And God can set you free too as well. For these Philistines, their confession of guilt is far from a confession of faith and repentance. They're, they're okay confessing, hey, you know what, we, we got all kinds of hardships, we got all kinds of struggles, and we'll confess that, you know, hey, maybe that's from God, but man, I'm not ready to give up my idol. I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but, but how many of us are there or have been there that I'm ready to confess, yeah, this is my problem, and I know it's causing me all kinds of problems, but man, I don't want to give up my idol. This is exactly where the Philistines are at. So the, the priests come up with a plan. Verse 7 says, Now, therefore, here's their plan. Make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart and, and take their calves home, away from them. And then take the ark of the Lord, set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering, in a chest by its side, and then send it away and let it go. And watch if it, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us 
by chance. Here's what's going on. They, they, they come up with this crazy idea where they're going, look, we've got these, we got all these, these, these tumors and stuff and all this hardship. And, you know, we think it might be because, you know, God's real and we've really, we've really gone afoul of the, the true and living God. We think really we might have brought this on ourselves. But we're going to hope maybe that we're wrong so we can keep trusting in our own idols. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up this real improbable situation so that, you know, if, if the, the total improbable happens, well, then we'll, you know, okay, we're, we're wrong. And it was God. And here's the improbable situation. They take a couple of cows that, you know, cows don't pull carts anyway, but they take a couple of cows that have never been yoked and they're going to put a yoke on them. They're going to hitch them to a, a, a cart. So what's going to happen when you have two wild animals that have never had a, a yoke on them, two cows that have never had a yoke on them, well, they're going to have a cow is what they're going to do. And so they put them on this. That, come on, that's funny, you know. Wake up. So they, so they, 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 they put the, the cow, they hook them up to it. And then what they do is they take their, their calves. Now, all you moms, okay, so you, you, you take your baby, and they take their calves, and they put the calves now at home in their home country, okay? Calves are at home in their home country, but what they're going to do is they want to see if these cows are going to go to a distant country. Country, by the way, they've never been to. These cows have never, they, they don't know their, their way there. And so what they're, what's, what's the likely thing that this mama cow is going to do? She's going to look for a baby, right? And so what they've done is they've set up this completely improbable situation. We'll hook them up to a, to a cart, put their babies over here, and, uh, and then, then we'll set them loose. And uh, maybe, you know, if, if by miracle of miracles, they walk to a town they've never been to before and they leave their babies behind and they, pull, you know, diligently pull a cart that they've never pulled before, well, then maybe it's God. Well, they do it, and that's exactly what happens. We continue. It says that, um, uh, verse 10, then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart. They shut up uh, their calves at home. And then they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. And then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes, and they saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. And then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, and so they split the wood of the cart, and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and they put them, these articles of gold, these, these golden tumors and these golden rats, on the large stone. And then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day uh, to the Lord. So what they did is they take all of these things and they, make the, they worship the Lord with all of it, burn the cart, sacrifice the cows, burn the golden tumors. They, these men of Israel, they, they give it all to the Lord. And so when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, these guys following along behind, they want to make sure, hey, are we getting rid of this thing? When they had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. 
These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelton, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden rats according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field uh, of Joshua of Beth. So in other words, what it's saying there is that these guys, these lords of the Philistines, they followed this improbable situation. They saw the ark of God returned and they're thinking, good, done. we, We gave this trespass offering and now we're free and now we're set free from all of these consequences. And and it would seem that the story ends with, you know, hey, we've we've made this offering for our guilt and shame, and uh, you know, we've 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 asked for forgiveness. But there's no repentance in there. There's no trusting in the Lord by faith in there. And it seems like they get away with it. But when we get into the subsequent chapters, what you're going to see is it doesn't go well for the Philistines at all. Why? No true repentance. No true faith. All right? It's not enough if you're here today for you to be guilty about your sin, for you to be sorry for your sin, for you to even acknowledge and say, you know what, God, you're right. I brought this on myself. That's not enough. And that doesn't get you off the hook. There has to be a true repentance. There has to be a, a true confession. And, and your, your, your repentance and your confession has to end with you saying, God, I've sinned against you and, and I'm sorry And I turn from that, and I'm going to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you, maybe you think you've done that, and maybe you really never have. And today, before we're done, I would be remiss if I taught this message, and I did not give you an opportunity to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation, and I would strongly encourage you. Some of you, you're in that place of, have I or haven't I? I really don't know. You need to make your calling and election sure. You've got to make it sure today. I'm going to give you an opportunity for that. But I want you to see in my third and last point is that there's a cost of facing God apart from Jesus Christ. There is a cost, a great cost, of facing God apart from Jesus Christ. Verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 19. We'll finish in this verse. It says, Then he, God, struck the men of Beth Shemesh. These Israelites, these these Israelites that had just worshipped the Lord and sacrificed to God. He struck them, why? Because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the, the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. What on earth is going on here? Listen, here, here's what's happening. And, and this answer is key to the entire chapter and it's, and it's key to the whole point today. And I'll make it quickly. Here's what you need to hear. These Jewish people, these Israelites, when this Ark of the Covenant came, here's what they knew. They knew that they were instructed never to touch the Ark of the Covenant, let alone to lift its lid, okay? They, they were instructed never to touch this thing. And, and here's why. The Ark of the Covenant, it was a box, right? But it contained these two stone tablets of the law, these, these Ten Commandments that Moses brought down off of Sinai. It contained God's standard, his righteous standard of perfection. And and the lid was the mercy seat. This represented the very presence of God. 
This is where the Lord, this, is, this represents Jesus Christ, this is where the Lord meets with his people. And again, that seat supremely represents Jesus Christ because it's the only place where God will meet him because it is the barrier between us and God's law. It is the barrier between us and God's perfect standard. And I meet guys all the time, and, and I'll talk to them and, and share faith with them and try and get them to a place of, of surrendering to Jesus Christ. And, and basically, I hear variations of different themes. The variations are, you know what, uh, I'm a good person. You know what, I'm, I'm not Charles Manson. I haven't killed anybody. Not, not exactly the greatest standard to base your eternal life on. I'm going to stand before God because I never killed anybody. You know, great, Right? I mean, fill, fill out a job application. Why should I hire you? Well, I never killed anybody, right? I mean, so, so I meet guys that'll say, oh, I'm a good guy. You know, I'm not, I haven't killed anybody. I'm a decent guy. Yeah, based on what standard? Because you're going to stand before a holy, righteous God who's, whose eyes are like a burning fire. And the Bible says that we will all give an account of our life. We will all stand before the Lord someday. And so you're going to stand before God and you're going to do so on the basis of, oh, I'm a good guy. Or I meet other guys and they say, you know what, I, I keep the Ten Commandments. I love when people say that to me. Because what do you think my next question is? What are the Ten Commandments? People are like, me, 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 me. I don't know, you know, they don't know. So, so it's like, you know, you can't even tell me what they are. How do you think you keep them? And besides, even if you can recite them to me, I'm going to point out to you that you've broken every single one. Well, I've never committed adultery. Jesus said, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. In your heart. And so, so the issue here is that we have all sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But it says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And that's the thing is that we have to understand, and here's what Paul told the Galatians, he says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You're not justified by keeping the law. The law is there to show you that you can't keep the law. And you see God's standard and you go, oh, I broke that. What, what do I do? You cry out to Jesus Christ. And you say, Lord, you live the perfect life. You died a substitutionary death on the cross for my sin in my place. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ. 